The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome, one and all, to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of Alison Bechdel's comics memoir, Are You My Mother? I'm Dan Coyce, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm joined here in Slate's New York recording studio by Megan O'Rourke, who's a culture critic for Slate. Hi, Megan. Hi, Dan. And Emily Bazelon, who's a Slate senior editor. Hi, Emily. Hello. We are here today to discuss Alison Bechdel's follow-up to her best-selling breakout book, Fun Home. Fun Home was about Alison's relationship to her father, a closeted gay funeral home director who committed suicide by jumping in front of a truck uh, while Allison was in her 20s. And now Are You My Mother is about Allison's relationship to her mother, Helen, an English teacher and an amateur actress uh, who is very much alive and very, very much a presence in Allison's life uh, day to day and, and, in fact, during the crafting of this book. In fact, a, a great deal of this book consists of Allison talking to her mother about the book. Uh, and the memoir's climax revolves around basically her mother's response to this exact memoir. Megan, you reviewed Are You My Mother for the Slate Book Review last month. And so I'd love to start with you, if I can. Early in the book, Allison takes pride in inheriting from her mother a desire to tease out patterns in the fabric of everyday life. The, the line is on page 31, the search for meaningful patterns may very well be crazy, but to be enlisted with her in it, with her mother in it, thrills me. And by that, I think she's referring really not just to what she loves to do on the day-to-day, but to the structure of this book, to the structure of Are You My Mother, which is even more intricate and recursive than the structure of Fun Home was. It bounces around in time. It tells stories within stories. You refer to it in your review as a Mubius strip. Is that how you pronounce it? Mubius strip? Yeah, All right. probably. Mubius I only ever strip. read it, so. Yeah. But <laughs> – it's less a proper story, really, than a search for meaningful patterns in her own life and in her mother's life. And, Megan, did you find that satisfying as a reader? Did, did that structure speak to you? Let's see. What can I say about this book? I have a very, per- I felt a very personal connection to this book because I had just written a memoir about my mother who had, who had died. And like Bechdel, turned to many different texts in search of a meaningful pattern, in search of patterns. So I felt completely sympathetic to and enthralled by that quest, that very internal quest. And when I got this book, sat down and read, I would say, the first two-thirds in kind of one huge gulp and found it all extremely satisfying. My one reservation about this book, which is a, which is a significant one, is that I felt the final third of the book didn't quite achieve some kind of lift off with that search for patterns that I was hoping it it might. Um, And, you know, when I reread the book, I thought, well, I don't really know how it could. I think this book actually does exactly what it sets out to do and maybe couldn't do much more. And certainly, and I hope we'll get to this, the very, very ending itself is is quite exquisite and, and I thought moving and seemed um, kind of authentically true, an authentic conclusion to this quest. But um, it's, it's, it is a kind of Mobius strip. I, I think one of the things that's, that's complicated about it, and I'd be interested to hear what Emily has to say, is that it moves back and forth in time in all these really wonderful ways that are ex- extraordinarily kind of um, enlightening in terms of your understanding of Allison and her mother. It also moves sideways to talk about Virginia Woolf and Donald Winnicott, the psychoanalyst who wrote about children and attachment and parents. But near the end, it goes back in time, even as it's going forward. And I kind of wanted this book to come forward in time even more. 
I, I agree with that. I mean, I also felt throughout that I was comparing it to Fun Home, which is just one of my favorite books. I really think it's exquisite and powerful and has such a driving story in it. She has amazing material in Fun Home because her father is such a complicated and fascinating character and there's a real darkness in him and she's grappling with this decision of his to commit suicide and also with the fact that he was a closeted gay man who was sleeping with younger men while he was married to her mother. And the Are You My Mother book does not have that same powerful, clear storytelling going for it. And that was a problem for me. And I should say, I have a huge intellectual crush on Alison Bechtel. Like, I feel some, I think a lot of her readers feel this sense that she's breaking ground in some way that um, is, I feel incredibly sympathetic to, and I'm rooting for her very hard. So I felt like I wanted to like this book more than I did. And um, some of it has to do with what I would oversimplify as saying a kind of sense that it's, there's a lack of payoff to the patterns that she's building. But some of it is just like, this is a turgid approach to writing a book. I mean, it's a lot about therapy. The language of psychoanalysis and of um, therapy is incredibly important to the book. You have to be up for that. In some sense, that part of it seemed kind of dated to me. Um, and I was struggling with it. How do you? Mm. What's your feeling, Dan? Uh, it's interesting that you compare it to Fun Home because I mean I think that I fall a little bit in the middle of the two of you in that I, I didn't relate to it as personally as Megan did. I don't think I was disappointed as disappointed by it as you were, but I did also compare it to Fun Home. I mean it's impossible not to those the these two books together form a little pair that beg to be compared to each other, and I was trying to figure out why. In the end, it was that I liked Fun Home a little bit better than I liked this. And I wonder, because going back through Fun Home, the structure of Fun Home is not that different than this. It's The primary difference between that book and this one is that that one, that story has an ending. And the ending is that the dad jumps in front of a truck. And this story doesn't have an ending. And so the result of that isn't just that we don't know how things turn out exactly, but it also means that because of the way that Alison Bechdel writes – It means that her mom is a presence intruding on every single page, commenting on it, frustrating us at times as readers by the way that she and her presence in Allison's life clearly keeps the book from moving forward at times. And Allison talks about that in the book over and over again, that she's she's a month late on the manuscript, that it was due three months ago, that it was due a year ago. And we know that the process of creating this was really difficult. For her, and one of the reasons we know as readers is because her mother is there every step of the way with her, you know, red pen, her emotional red pen, marking off the manuscript as we go, and and so and so it's hard for me to imagine, given the way that Alison Bechdel writes, a way that this book could have been written differently. And I guess I don't want it to have been written differently, even though the result of it in the end wasn't something I loved as much as as I wanted to or could have. Isn't it? problem, though, that one of the main arguments she's making with the various thinkers she weaves in. So she's one of her figures is Donald Winnicott, who's this well-known turn of the 20th century figure in European psychiatry. That's fair. Mm-hmm. And psychoanalysis. And he has his best known idea is this idea of the, the good enough mother, that you can be an ordinary mother who's connected enough to your baby and your child that you can do, your kids will be fine. And that's very central to her her understanding of parenthood. And yet, 
she wants to get a lot of drama out of her relationship with her own mother, but her own mother's errors and flaws seem quite ordinary to me. I mean, when I was going back last night and looking at this again, the moments that are milked for a lot of drama are things like, you know, it, there's a big, her mother couldn't breastfeed or stop breastfeeding when Allison was six weeks. I just do not believe that this has some fundamental effect on well, I just absolutely am skeptical. There's a photo sequence when Allison is three or four months where she says that she feels like her childhood ended because the last sequence of the last photo, she has a scared expression on her face. Totally don't buy that. And then there are things like when she was seven, her mother stopped kissing her goodnight. Okay, that's not something I would ever do with my own kids. But, like, this is not the stuff of high drama, whereas Fun Home has this, like, crazy batshit dad who's doing all kinds of weird stuff. But, see, this is what I find so fascinating about the book, and this is what I do like about the book, which is that I think the drama that is the drama between mothers and children, mothers and daughters maybe particularly, is always a drama. It's always a high drama to the child. And um, it is for so many of us, not for all of us, but for so many of us, the fundamental defining relationship in terms of how we imprint our ideas about attachment, how we imprint security. That's why she's that's why she has to go into all of this perhaps somewhat turgid material, right? Because she's interested in thinking through and kind of theorizing her relationship with her mother, which is supposed to just be this kind of natural relationship, mother, daughter, you know, by contrast, we have all the kind of you Google mother and daughter, as I often do, and you come up with like Hallmark pages and, you know, mother, daughter matching prints and so on and so forth. So she's trying to, I think, kind of write an intellectual portrait of a mother and daughter. Um, And I think that you have to sort of start with the adult Bechdel, which is this author who has written this book about her father that has troubled her mother. Um, Part of what's troubled her mother is the revelation that the father is gay. In the sense of scandal. In the sense of scandal and exposure, right. And Alison Bechdel herself is gay. And that the central drama, as I take it, is the drama of the mother refusing to acknowledge and accept not maybe acknowledge, but refusing to truly accept that part of her daughter's identity and the extraordinary psychic pain that that seems to occasion. And yet, did you because feel like they're that close. was present in this book? It's oh, absolutely. I felt it, it present okay. on every page. And all of those moments that you describe are, for me, these pained attempts to come up with a narrative to explain that lack of acceptance and explain the distance that she feels from her mother, even though obviously there's also this kind of incredible close bizarre closeness too um so to me it's a it's a it's a kind of like narrow board drama but it's a very deep and real drama for for me as a reader but it was as i was reading it i was so curious because i thought i'm totally fascinated by this because i'm fascinated by mothers and daughters and and where things go wrong and even when you have a close relationship with a mother where you might obsessively return to these kinds of moments in your childhood. Um, but I thought there are probably many readers who will not connect to this whatsoever. Let's talk a little bit about about Helen, about the yeah. mother that Alison Bechtel is writing about in this book. Um, I mean, she obviously that's the primary relationship the book is exploring. She's a, a, a She was an aspiring actress as a child. She even went off to the Cleveland Playhouse for a couple of years to you know, make sets and play small roles um, before eventually coming back to Pennsylvania where Allison was born and marrying her father and having three kids. And there is a sense of 
frustration I think you get off her, although it's not that explicit in the book, but you see it in the way that she responds to Allison, her daughter's artistic attempts in her life. You know, there's that great moment where Allison writes a, an essay about an early moment of her childhood and she sends it to her mom asking basically, do you remember this? And her mom sends it back to her just covered in extremely well-crafted editorial notes about like her use of adverbs and stuff. But then up at the top of the page, her mother also writes, am I being too critical? I'm probably jealous because you're writing and I am not. What did you guys think of Helen and and her as a character, and did you love her? Were you intrigued by her? Did you find her sort of impossible the way I did? I felt really sorry for her and the sense that she had been born into the wrong generation. I feel like I know a lot of women like this who, if they were my age or younger, they would be, you know, kicking ass in some forum, some profession, some way of contributing on a larger canvas. And instead... Because they didn't quite have what it took to be enormously groundbreaking and to uh, bust through the normal gender roles of their time, their lives are more – they're smaller and more cramped in terms of having some kind of public exposure. And I think what's amazing about Helen is precisely that line you just pulled out because she wrote down for her daughter her own envy. And envy is like a really explicit and quite wonderful theme in this book, I think, because Allison writes about her own envy. And this is something we don't really do as writers. And her mother is paving the way for her here. And I found it like tremendously sad and powerful. Mm. Yeah. You know... It's so hard for me to talk about certain elements of this book, Helen being one of them, because, again, having just written about real people who are living in my life as well as my dead mother, I was so highly aware at every step of the way that this was Allison's rendering of Helen, who is a person, who is not the person who's in the book, right? So this is one story that one could tell about this woman who is Helen Bechdel. So... I kept coming back to that, and and I think that the book wants you to. It calls itself a, the mother describes it to Allison finally as a meta memoir, and I think one of the reasons it's really a meta memoir is that, as you were saying, she, she's still alive. There's no there's no end to this this story as we have it. So, you know, my reaction to Helen, the character, was I was agonized by her. You know, I just thought, for God's sake, you have a great daughter, just. You know, <laughs> to stop with the nervousness about the lesbianism, you know, like right, that so was weird. my that was my human response, which is not a literary one. So apologies for that. But it, but it's just my response. I just right. thought, really, you know, come on. And I don't have a person like that in my own family life. So it's, it's hard for me to to understand why Helen is the way she is, except to go to the gen, partly to the generational piece. Um, one thing that I think is is more present in Fun Home and less present here is why Helen, especially after the publication of Fun Home should remain so concerned with what the neighbors and these other people might think and, and so nervous about and all of this. It's, it's very hard to understand, I think, just from, from this book, except that it must be some psychological Maybe now that President Obama has endorsed her in Well, perhaps. She's come yes. around. Perhaps. Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, yeah. there is, you do see that all through this book. I mean, there's she moves away from the house, that big Victorian mm-hmm. that was such a part of Fun Home that her father had spent so much time renovating in mm-hmm. this book she moves away out of that house and into a a house closer to the school where she teaches and she does seem very concerned about those things even though in the way i in the way that allison presents her she already sort of seems like the town eccentric Mm -hmm. you know i mean she's not in a bad Mm -hmm. way and in the Mm -hmm. she 
has big ideas about literature and she mm-hmm. acts and plays and has forever. And I mean, she's the lady in town who plays the lead in a little night music and everyone knows her, you know, and she I wishes assume. she were Helen Vendler, right. who is a you know poetry critic at Harvard, who kind of beat a very different path, a much more, uh, you know, talking about of that generation chose a very different kind of path. And so I feel like I had to read Helen as within the context of this narrative, you know, she's telling herself a narrative about Allison, which is, that if only she weren't lesbian, right, a lesbian, that seems to be part of her relation to her daughter. And yet it seems to be really about her own thwarted sense of identity, that her so much of her troubles with her daughter really seem to come from her own sense of thwarted aspirations and, and having not made the choices to be free that she could have made, right? That, There's that's a wonderful kind of a line poignant. from Allison where she says that her lesbianism is what keeps her from utter compliance. Yeah. This idea right. that yeah. it's like yeah. the, the, the yeah. raft of rebellion she's clinging right. to, and it really makes sense. Right. right, and you really see that between them, and it's you feel that the mother has chosen to be compliant, even though she hasn't really. And so that's you just still see the mother's struggle at every step of the way within the, within this. And Allison is having a struggle too, but Allison's struggle is to, to kind of... It's interesting that it makes sense to me that... I think memoirists, people who write memoirs, tend to come from families that had secrets of some kind. I think that that deep impulse to tell a story comes from rejecting silence. And it, you see it on every page of this book. And she does it in such sometimes a graphic way. I mean, one of my favorite things yeah. about this book is the way she writes about sex and her yeah. own body. It's really yeah. frank and funny and very real in yeah. a way that's pretty unusual, I think. For That scene where she is in the middle of sex with her girlfriend who she's about to break up with and it's not going well and she just gets up and kicks a hole. In the- oh my God, I <laughs> love that the hole scene. Is there forever. Yeah. And, and the she, there forever. she tells you that right. she, that was like the perfect kick because right. she's like a karate. Right. right. Expert, and it was like super awesome. Kick. I love that. It was great. Also, we should say, I mean, she draws herself so oh, well, yeah. especially in times of pain or anxiety or torment. I mean, yeah. the drawings in this book are, they're more than complementary to the text. They're completely crucial to how you understand it. And it means that the book operates on these different levels in a way that's, I mean, I, I read her book so slowly because I'm trying to take in all the different layers. Yeah. No, it's very difficult to talk about this book without talking about the drawings because the drawings are absolutely crucial to it. I mean, I kept playing a mind game of how would this scene work if you could just, could you write this scene if you just had words? And a lot of them I don't think you could just write in the way that she's written them. You have to have the drawings and the drawings complicate them and add poignancy and so much humor that moment. And then there's another one where she's standing with her under, in her underwear with her back to you. I mean, she's very, you know, it's interesting because it's so visual, but it's definitely not cinematic. Right. Right. It's rejecting any kind of um, glossing over right. or, you know, prettifying of the story. I mean, as someone who reads a lot of comics, I, I always really love seeing a comic get written that could only have been done in comics form. Yeah. I yeah. mean, as you guys have said, there pretty much every moment of the story is dependent on being able to combine word and image, um, multiple images and multiple words from multiple sources all at the same time to work together in a way that you can't do in any other medium. You couldn't do it in film. You couldn't do it anywhere else. And I find that really rewarding as a writer and as, as a reader. And, um, and you know, with a lot of comics or graphic novels, uh, they're the, the kinds of books, even if they're really great, that you can read in like a, in a half-hour shot, you know, as a 
book reviewer, often I love reviewing comics or graphic novels because instead of like the 17 hours you have to sit down with a big novel, <laughs> you can like knock out the book in 45 minutes and then just get to writing. But that is not the case with Alison Bechdel's books. I mean, these are books that take mm. as long as or longer than the equivalent length prose book to read because of the density of information on every page and there's a lot to process. Um, so let's talk about the art a little bit more. Um, one moment in this book that I really loved a lot that was very sly and, and I didn't even catch it the first time I went through it was um, the way that she uses the process of drawing herself to talk about the relationship between her and her mother and it's on page 233. She's talking about how you know there's a real similarity between her and her mother in a lot of ways um, and she's talking about her mom's acting career and, and how it occurs to her that they're not so different. At the bottom of page 233, we've just seen her hang up on her mother after her mom made her cry in the middle of a phone conversation. And then all of a sudden the image on the next page – or uh, sorry, at the bottom of the page draws back a little bit and we see the same scene of her with her head resting on the table crying. But in front of us is a, is a camera – a Canon camera on a tripod taking a photo of what we've just seen. Which is how she draws, right? right? And then on the next page, we see Allison looking at that photo that she just took. And what we realize eventually, or what I realized the second time through the book, is that we're now seeing that moment of her hanging up on her mother in despair transmogrified into the moment where she took the reference photo of herself to later draw from. And that's the exact moment in the story when she's telling us, when I think about mom's acting career, it occurs to me that we're not so different. It's just that instead of playing a character, I'm playing myself. And the artwork in this book serves to remind you all the time that everyone in this book is a character in Alison Bechdel's story, including Alison herself. I was also really intrigued in this book, and I don't really know what the answer to this is. I'd be interested in what you guys think. She uses spot color, which is to say every page isn't in full color. It's There's simply one prevailing color that runs throughout the entire book. In Are You My Mother, it's red. And so we get the dark red of certain wallpapers or furniture. We get the light pink of, of the covers on Allison's bed when she was a girl. We get uh, even when she throws up in one scene, it's red, so it almost looks like blood. Um, in Fun Home, the color was blue. It was sort of bluish green. And as you page through Fun Home, it, just the look of it is so much cooler and, and different than the look of Are You My Mother? What do you guys think of that? I mean, what, what does that choice give her that visually that it, that it didn't give her in Fun Home? I mean, she had to choose red, right? Because menstrual blood is such a theme mm-hmm. of this book and important to her. And um, I feel like red was absolutely the natural color. And the cover of the book has this evocative drawing of her mother's vanity table and all these very feminine objects which are not Allison's way of being in the world but that are her mother's way I mean there's that whole thing about how she won't face the world until she puts on her face Hmm. exactly so to me it feels like absolutely the right choice so many kinds of staging this well you know it's so interesting I read the galley which didn't have color in it at all yeah (laughs) oh my god so I didn't have this experience of color whatsoever reading the book and I didn't miss it until I saw you guys I mean it's it's got a red cover so that right Mood and I circled certain things with red pen as it happened. So perhaps I was channeling <laughs> the mood of this book. And now but, you can be envious. Um, but yeah, looking over at Emily's here, it's a very different feel from Fun Home for sure. And it makes sense to me that it would have to be red. It's like moody mm-hmm. too. Yeah. And the it's, book is it's moody, heavy. It I mean, it's hormones. not pretending not to be right, not to be kind of a heavy. Thing. But I love that moment you pointed out, Dan, about her photographing herself because it's also one where she says that was the last time mom made me cry. Mm-hmm. 
and it got easier after this. So it sort of gets easier as you retreat into the self that's not the false self that she talks about, but the self that's the, the artist self that is rejecting, right? So it's like the subject, Allison, is kind of the false self, and the creator, Allison, is the real self in this book, which is just one of many moments where there's something really, really deft like that happening. It's a very thinky book, for yeah. sure. You're, yeah. you're only going to like this book if you're interested in thinking about yourself a lot. And I, I read an interview where she talked about kind of daring herself to write the book that would be so – that everyone could call narcissistic. Like, right? Your dreams, you your know, therapy like session, flooding everywhere. You write, she writes about dreams repeatedly, yeah. right? She writes about her mother who's still alive and then writes about what her mother says to her. She's transcribing phone conversations in the book, and right? And moment then, she loses what her mother actually right, said and then literally like what her therapists are saying to her. And I think one problem with the book that – or what maybe part of your problem, Emily, with this idea of payoff too – is that when you set up a therapeutic vocabulary, you can only have a therapeutic conclusion, which is what this book has, even though it's a kind of brilliant one. Right. I mean, we it's, end with this idea of the subject destroying the object yeah. and the object surviving, if I got that right. Yeah. And that is super yeah. couched in right. the language right. of psychoanalysis. Right. So I don't know. I, but th- this is totally far afield from the question of red. I, I don't know. The red the red was moody. Well, so let's <laughs> talk about the, the, the book's use of therapy, though, because that is, that's a part of the book that was completely alien to me. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's not part of my experience. I don't think usually think of myself in using that kind of language or think of other people using that kind of language. It's just sort of deeply unfamiliar to me. And I found it fascinating at times, but also that those were the parts of the book that I found the most frustrating. Although her relationship with her therapists and specifically with Jocelyn, the therapist who serves as sort of her other mother throughout the course of this book was almost unbelievably moving. And this is another place where the art helped so much is just all those scenes of Jocelyn, the therapist with her like perfectly done hair, staring right at you, the reader, mm. while Allison mm-hmm. is in the middle of a therapy session. Mm-hmm. Even right down to behind her is in every scene is the same poster from like the Santa Fe Chamber Quartet or something. That's what and it's it, like. Right. And that's, yeah, so you just know <laughs> that she's seen change. it so many times. And that's, it's always serene and calm. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, it's not so, moody, that poster. So I'm, I'm assuming that you guys both have more experience in this realm than me. So how for you, how did the therapy and how did her relationship with her therapist play into your response to this book? So my mother is a psychiatrist mm-hmm. and often worries about and complains about images of psychiatrists psychiatrists in the media, especially on TV, but in books too, psychiatrists are demonized. They like cause all kinds of problems. They're often, you know, reaching across the table and molesting their patients. And so I was just in love with this portrait because it's very sympathetic. The the therapists are really taking her somewhere where she couldn't have gone by herself. Um, She has these lasting relationships with them. And, you know, one of the things that's unusual, I think, is that often at least my mother says that adults in therapy continue on, but they don't have necessarily a dramatic moment where they get better. That's not really what it's about. Sometimes with children, I think, at least according to my mom, that can happen more. But you have this feeling with this book that she really is progressing. And when she goes back to see Jocelyn later on in her life, she can reflect back on that period and realize that Jocelyn really helped her, but that she's in a different place. And that was really satisfying. Just to explain that, you know, Jocelyn was her therapist for years and years when she lived in Minnesota, and a great deal of the book 
takes place during that time period in her interactions with her. There's even a handy chart. Page 22. I kept going back to this chart because Mm -hmm. it's the therapist, the mother, and the girlfriends all in one page. Mm -hmm. And and this is one of her introductions of Donald Winnicott. And so it captured a lot for me. Right. It's a very handy timeline of Allison's life as seen through the therapist she saw and the girlfriends that she's had. So she was with Jocelyn for several years in her 20s. And then she moved. She left Minnesota to chase after a woman and uh, she went to other therapists and eventually had another long relationship with a therapist named Carol where she ended up living but she goes back to Jocelyn about 10 years later I think right just as she started with Carol this new therapist and revisits their time together and it seems and it's something that was a a little bit moving to me it seems like her relationship with Jocelyn meant as much to Jocelyn as it did to mm-hmm. Allison, or at least as far as we know, as far as we see it as it's presented in this book. And one of the reasons it's a successful, important relationship is Jocelyn breaks the rules by telling right. Allison that she's adorable and giving Allison some of the affirmation her own mother doesn't right. provide. And Allison holds on to that, and it co- this moment comes up in their moment of being reunited later on. And Jocelyn says, you know, I've learned since then, and I really shouldn't have done that, but I'm still glad I did. And I was so... Yeah pleased for that as this um, acknowledgement that sometimes breaking the rules is exactly what you need yeah. to do. Right. But not breaking – like you don't always have to be a therapist and break the rules and actually molest your clients. Yeah. Right. You could just, just say something You can break nice. them in a nice way. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> That's the most meaningful part of this book with regard to the, the therapy question, right? And it's hard. I mean I, I thought the Jocelyn parts were wonderful. The Carol parts – you know, there were moments where it just felt less active than some of the other sections of this book and some of the writing of it. And as I was reading this book, actually, right before I was read this, I had been reading Adam Phillips' book, Side Effects. He's a psychoanalyst who writes a lot about he writes essays about kind of analysis and literature. And there's an essay in there about psychoanalysis and narrative and the difference between novel and the kind of narratives we tell ourselves in creative work, which I would count this in, and then the narratives that come or don't come out of therapy. And so it was very interesting to read this after having read that. I, anyone curious should go look up that essay. But because it did kind of illuminate the problems with you things, using therapy, which is that the nature of storytelling when it comes to personal therapy is very different from the nature of imaginative storytelling, which it, to me actually I think is the subject of this book in some interesting and fascinating way. Right? It is. That and on some they're level, going you next go to for each that other. or yeah. you don't, yeah. right? You're yeah. interested in that yeah. and drawn to it or yeah. you're a little bit put off by it. Yeah. I don't I think you're I think you were saying this in the beginning, Dan. I don't think it's that there was some platonic version of this book she could have executed better. Mm-hmm. I think it's a question of whether this book right. well executed appeals to you. Well, because, you know, this book with the absence of because the mother Helen is still alive the book is like therapy which is to say it's ongoing Um, and so there's a story you can tell yourself about the present but it's it's a story and that's what's that's why I kept thinking about the Mobius strip with this book because you this book sort of in a way is about the problems of narrative and how we are stuck in these bodies and minds that we all are telling ourselves stories about our lives in order to go through the moment. But often, much later, we'll look back and have a clearer view of something um, right. that sometimes therapy can help us maybe have a clearer view of in the moment. But So I felt like that was what this book was constantly dancing with, which was the question of how can I have a slightly clearer view now so that when the mother, my mother isn't here too. I won't have 
not had a certain kind of communication with her. No, did you, right. was it a problem for you guys, as it was for me, I will put that out there, <laughs> that her vision is much clearer about her previous romantic relationships also. Yeah. And I understand that. I'm sure she doesn't want to write about her current girlfriend. It's, you right. can't have critical distance. Also, it's the relationship you're in. Your privacy right. is implicated in a different way when it's your present. But I felt like that was missing, that you had a sense of where she'd moved in her therapy and somewhat of her grappling with her mother, although I agree with you, Megan, that it doesn't quite get there, and really none of where she arrives romantically. And that's such an important part of who she is and how she's making peace with herself. It's this theme and then it, I think, essentially gets dropped and yeah. I miss that. I wanted some some resolution of that part of the story. I missed it too, but I was not surprised that she was gun-shy. Totally. totally. I would have given, done the same thing right? if I were her, right. but well, I, I mean, missed it given, also. Yeah. yeah. And given her yeah. own, I mean, specific history, which of course she deals with in this, right. which is, you know, I was looking at Fun Home a few minutes ago and it's dedicated to her old girlfriend, the one who in Are You My Mother, we see them breaking up as right. Fun Home comes out and she's about to leave on right. her book tour. Right. I wouldn't right. write about, you know, my girlfriend either if I were her. And yet, as the reader, right. I was, you, that's well, the moment where you want this to be fiction right. and then, right. of course, you would get right. that. And I, and I think that is because there is a suggestion, certainly at the beginning of the book, that one of the reasons she has these serial monogamous relationships, one of the things she struggled, Alice and the character in the memoir is struggling with, is attachment, right? And right. Which, is, which is one of the themes of the book. How do you attach to your mother and then how do you attach to other romantic partners? And she talks about, over and over, she talks about how she keeps getting drawn to other people, people other than her girlfriend. Um, and so that's very clearly one of the preoccupying questions and themes of this book. But it feels like that part of it becomes a private – there's a private answer that we don't quite get. And again, I totally understand why. I mean, but, or maybe but, there is. I mean, maybe there is. Or maybe not. Answer. Or maybe not. Yeah. Right. But there's no but there's a But there's certainly a continuity. There's right. something going on. Right. Right. One way or the other. I wanted to also talk about something that we've touched on a little bit, um, but that we haven't gotten into a lot, which is all the other texts that intrude on this work. I mean, we've mentioned Donald Winnicott. We've mentioned Virginia Woolf. Who and actually we, meet each other in Allison's mm-hmm. Imagine. Right. The um, only fiction. My favorite part of the I book, I love possibly. that page so yeah. much. The only fiction in this book, as Emily and Megan are referring to, is a, a brief imagining that Allison does of um, Donald Winnicott and Virginia Woolf running into each other or walking past each other at least uh, on, by a park in London in I can't even remember what year but at a time where they both lived only a few blocks away from each other 1924 1924 and uh, it's a, just a brief moment of imagining that Allison does but it seems key to getting into the, the all the different ways she's as you mentioned Megan at the beginning searching for for texts that will help her understand what she's trying to understand I mean another writer who's who inhabits this book briefly, but who makes a big mark, I think, is someone who you didn't have time to mention in your review, although I know she was much on your mind recently, is Adrian Rich. Yeah. Allison goes to see Adrian Rich at one point uh, to see a reading that she does. She gets a, a very nice rejection letter from Adrian Rich uh, for an essay that she wrote. And I'd love to hear you guys talk a little bit about how those texts intruding on this book change the way you read it and whether in the end you love them or if, as I did, 
at times they really added to the book to me and at times I found myself going, okay, well, here's more Donald Winnicott that I'm going to skim and just get on to the Alison Bechdel. They well, add and I they think... weigh down at the same time yeah. right? in different moments. She has to have them. They would. The book would be too narrowly therapeutic or too narrowly kind of trying to ask questions about her mom. I think for her trying to understand her relationship with her mother – is totally intertwined with going and searching for texts that will help her. And this is what her family does. They're like incredible readers. I mean, it's really something. Language was our field of contest, she says, about her and her mother. Right. So it's it's totally intertwined. I wish that there had been a little bit more, and as I said, I have a high appetite for this, but I do (laughs) wish that there had been a little bit more of the kind of moment that we just described between Winnicott and Wolf, like a slightly more imaginative relationship to that work Um, and more because I think that this book is ultimately about how the imagination saves you the creative self saves you and the creative self is the true self my main wish for the book is that it had more of the imaginative self in it and a little bit less of the thinking transcribing self and that Winnicott had become a platform for you know the the kind of fanciful beautiful drawing that we get of of, you know him and wolf crossing paths Um, or there's another wonderful moment where she's turning to Dr. Seuss as a text, and that's a beautifully imaginative moment. There's a gorgeous just rendering of a Seuss drawing, and then her own kind of annotations of thinking about it. It's the womb. It's, it's the, the dome. It's that you the hide dome. Under. It's right. Yes. It's the fort you make as a child. It's the creative space of the self. I mean, it's such a crucial moment in the book. And I thought that this book would have been served by a few more moments like that, and that Rich would have been a great kind of model for that because Rich, like Bechdel is a creative person who's also a very analytical person mm-hmm. and found a way to have to do both of those things, though separately, you know, her she wrote essays and poems. So her poems are kind of essayistic. So I wanted more of the poem in this in this book, um, I would say. One of the moments where I felt like the text did sort of imaginatively intrude in a, in a way that I liked a lot was right at the end of the book when she goes with, with her mom to a little night music on Broadway, yeah. the one that was just up a couple years ago with Angela Lansbury and Catherine Zeta-Jones and just there's no real transmogrification there but it's a it is in a way that one of the climaxes of the story of her and her mother and it's a great yeah. moment that they have together and that leads me to I think maybe the last thing I'd like to talk about today which is what is the story really of this book if that's an ending right if if that scene between her and her mother is one of the endings of this book what does it mean? I mean, in audiobook clubs, we talk a lot about plot usually because we're guiding people through the book. But in this one, we haven't talked about it at all because there functionally isn't one. And sometimes that's problematic for the book and sometimes that enriches the book. But there is some journey she's going on and there is some conclusion that she reaches. And you guys have hinted at it, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you think it is that she accomplishes at the end and also what the very last image and moment of the book does for you. I think along the way, she reconciles herself with what her mother has given her and what her mother has withheld. And that her mother is perhaps never going to be someone who entirely embraces Allison's life. Allison the character. And Allison the person, too, maybe. So that she needs to... um, that Allison needs to allow for that. They they have a close relationship. They talk on the phone constantly, but the conversations are very much Helen talking to Allison instead of the other way around, which seemed kind of unusual to me. Yeah. And Allison has to decide that the kind of approval and warmth and utter affirmation she's seeking, which is completely something that we all, I think, seek from our mothers, that she's 
not going to have that, but that her mother has given her these tools for making art and for understanding, if not herself, at least like battling with the world that she's in and that that's mm. more important. One of my favorite lines in the book, and I don't have it to quote, but she says that if she had to choose between being able to make art and having this like more perfect childhood, she would choose the art, yeah. which I think is exactly right. She suffered, but not so much that it wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. I think that the the plot of the book is pretty clearly described in the last few pages of it, which is, and it goes back to this idea I was talking about earlier about silence. I, I think in Bechdel's childhood, there was this premium placed on silence. And, and I think when that happens, right, the silencing of the father's homosexuality, the silencing of the abnormal, the eccentric, the, 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 it's a deeply eccentric family that also kind of doesn't want to be eccentric or seen as eccentric. And or we even see him saying, can't see you get those brats to be quiet? Yeah, exactly. And so to me, the plot of this book is the plot of a daughter, a sensitive, creative daughter who has stories to tell, who has felt silenced in some way and silenced in particular in her relationship to her mother and her mother's own silence, what she feels about the mother's silence. And that the plot of the book is the search, which is deeply internal and and therefore probably hard for some people to relate to, to speak and to speak not just generally because she's already done that in Fun Home, but to speak to the mother of the mother. Right. Which is and this is why Winnicott is relevant, because Winnicott says this is what the child has to do. It has to destroy the object and see the object survive. The object always being the mother and see the object survive that destruction. So that's what this book is. She's writing about her mother's reluctance to have her write about her writing that down, writing more deeply into it, writing about her reluctance, you know, her difficult relationship with her mother, writing about how her mother feels about her homosexuality, writing about all of her mother's rebukes and moments of unkindness, the stopping the kissing, all of these things, and then showing the the climax of the book, and this is a little bit of a spoiler for those of you who haven't read it, but I think we have to go here, right? The climax of the book is her showing the manuscript to her mother and her mother saying, oh, it's pretty good now. It's it's a meta. I see it. The themes work. It's a meta memoir. That's the climax of this book. And that's why it can't be any other book than this, but it's not going to be a satisfying book to everybody because it's really about this very specific psychological journey. And what that leads her to is this beautiful final page in which she says that there's something I didn't get from my mother, but in its place she has given me something else, which is the satisfactions of making art, which which are not merely that art is helpful to you in being a better person. It's that it's purely satisfying. It's purely it's immersive. It's it's that thing she captures so perfectly in those fort drawings and the Dr. Seuss that it's this place of, of joy and absorption that she was not able to have anywhere else. And the yeah. drawing that goes with that yeah. last um, moment, which I love how you describe that, is this bird's eye view of yeah. her artist self looking down on her mother and her mm. own child self. And mm-hmm. there's something very moving about that foreshortened image that a Mm -hmm. way that she's able to be Mm -hmm. very intimate with the figures and Mm -hmm. removed at the same time I think especially when you think of it when you think of Alison Bechdel's working method when I see that image I also think of her attaching the camera to her ceiling standing there with her hands on her hips to play her mother as she played every role in this book and then drawing you know and then crouching down to play herself as a child yeah It, it does I mean every image gives you that little burst of 
of the joy of creating that image. Yeah. So and recreation. All right. Yeah. 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 So recommend, not recommend, Megan, recommend. I recommend this book, but I will say that I don't think it's going to be for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do think if you're a kind of thinky person. If you're an unthinking person. If you're an unthinking person, don't read this. <laughs> no, but you know, if you want plot, if you want if Fun Home, I love Fun Home. It's a very different book. I reread it after this, and it's it's much more satisfying on a certain level because right. it has this great, incredible story. I, this is an incredible story, but it's... It's like a dissection. It's a certain mo- – it's not everything. It's part of the story and yet all the story. I don't know. I think if you're interested in mothers and daughters or mothers, it's, you should read it. It's fascinating. Emily? I think start with Fun Home. And if you're drawn to Alison Bechdel's work, then you'll ha- be much more likely to have the patience for this book. And even if, like me, you come away somewhat disappointed, you'll still be really interested in it. I'm completely glad I read it despite my misgivings. Right. Yeah, I feel like if anyone thinks that they will be interested in this book, they will almost certainly be interested in this book. Yes, exactly. If anyone feels allergic to it as a result of everything they've heard us say, then you're absolutely right. Stay away from it. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Emily and Megan. Uh, This was a fun discussion. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection is Fifty Shades of Grey the Twilight fan fiction turn mega best-selling book of erotica by E.L. James. So, read Fifty Shades on the Beach, or, more likely, reread your already well-thumbed copy, and join me, Megan, and Double X editor Hannah Rosen for our discussion on June 29th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Megan O'Rourke and Emily Bazelon, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.